Ken Alex, the executive producer of Climate Break, as well as a director of Project Climate at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley Law, sat down with me to talk about the aftermath of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill passed by President Biden in November of 2021 to see how it will affect the climate. Welcome to Climate Break. I'm pleased to be joined by Ken Alex, who is the director of Project Climate at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment, and of course, the godfather of Climate Break, because this show was his concept. And prior to that, he had a long career with the Attorney General's office and advising Governor Jerry Brown. We talked about this issue about six, eight months ago, which is the infrastructure bill. And of course, long-running joke, Infrastructure Week in Washington, D.C. Well, President Joe Biden has made that happen and actually has able to get passed through the Congress a bipartisan infrastructure bill. So our conversation earlier this year was really about, in a sense, a kind of a hypothetical infrastructure bill. But now we know what the provisions are. Of course, there's another social policy reconciliation bill looming out there. We won't talk about that now. We just want to talk about the infrastructure bill and what its impact on climate change will be. So, so pleased to be joined once again by Ken. And Ken, the question is, what's the infrastructure bill's impact on climate change? Well, first of all, thanks, Ethan. And I should introduce you, the voice of Climate Break, uh, longtime director of the climate program at the Center for Law, Energy, and Environment, and currently the interim executive director. So great to, to chat with you. And, you know, what I want to say first is the fact that this bill passed and has a trillion dollars of spending over a period of years is pretty incredible and I think has not gotten nearly the attention or uh, accolades or recognition that it should. This, this is a truly U.S. changing piece of legislation. Well, why do you think it hasn't gotten those accolades? Well, I mean, it's part of the political sort of situation in the country. No matter what you do that's good, it's attacked and ignored, even though this is quasi-bipartisan, meaning it got a few Republican votes in the Senate and a few Republican votes in the House. It's primarily a Democratic bill and it's uh, a Democratic administration. And, you know, going back now 20 plus years, the party that's out of power never gives any credit to anything to the party in power. It, it's a complicated bill. It covers a huge amount of ground, and nobody has really explained that in a way in bite-sized pieces to people. And I will say, I've looked at the bill in a reasonable amount of detail. It's massive, and I can't tell you what's in it. So, I mean, I can tell you some of the, the major categories, and we'll talk about that in a bit. It covers so much ground, and it's gonna touch lives of almost everybody in the country. That's amazing. And I think we should be really pleased that we have a chance to rebuild some of our infrastructure, which everybody knows is crumbling in a lot of places. And we need to, to do this. And the beauty of this bill, which we'll talk about in a minute, is a lot of what it does to move our response to climate change forward in a bunch of different ways. So let me pass it back to you and you know ask you, what are some of the highlights for you? And I'll certainly talk about that as well. Well, I, there's some great investments in passenger rail infrastructure. That really stood out to me. $66 billion in rail, which a lot of that could go potentially to California's high-speed rail system, which could really be transformative for that project, maybe actually get it to the Bay Area. So that would be big. But there's other 
passenger rail networks around the country that that would be really transformational for. I mean, I'd like to see more money, but it's, that's still a big infusion. And then the electric vehicle charging piece uh, also really stood out to me. And then the last piece is just the climate adaptation side of things. I think Senator Bill Cassidy in Louisiana was, was part of that bipartisan Republican vote. And that was kind of the price of his involvement was making sure places like Louisiana and the Gulf Coast were fortified against extreme weather, you know, flooding impacts, those kinds of things. Yeah, those are those are all really highlights. I, I want to look at a couple of the smaller things because one of the things that I see is it doesn't all have to be government investments. You mentioned the EV infrastructure. California is probably going to get about $375 million for electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And the state in its own budget is going to add another billion. So there is a very significant government public investment in EV infrastructure that's going to change the face of how consumers interact with electric vehicles. But that's just the start because what that government investment means is that you're going to reduce the price of that infrastructure. You're going to make it much more broadly available. And you're going to, I think, accelerate quite substantially private sector investment. Another example of that, one of the provisions in the infrastructure bill is a significant amount of funding for electric buses. That's really pretty great because it's an area where the turnover rate is relatively slow and it's hard for school districts, which basically buy these buses, to turn over and get new stock and they need help. But once this starts happening, you're increasing the market, you'll have market penetration and the price will come down and there'll be new innovation. There, you know, there, are, there are companies that are looking at how you transform, you simply replace the combustion engine in existing buses at a much lower cost as opposed to a whole new bus. There, there are bus companies that are gonna be all over this and also because buses have repeating loops, they seem ideal for the type of infrastructure that you need because you always know when you need to recharge. Mm-hmm. And then maintenance costs are lower. So over time, it's gonna, gonna be a really big value for local governments and for school districts. Yeah, well, they're fixed routes, as you mentioned, and also they're only going during the morning times and the, and the afternoon pickup. For, so there's a potential that they could make money during the day when they're plugging in and charging for the afternoon route to provide grid services, maybe charging at a variable rate or even discharging from the buses back into the grid. And from a public health standpoint, I mean, we've got kids riding around in diesel buses, breathing in fumes. So a lot of public health savings as well. But I think it's an interesting point. I mean, you're right about jumpstarting private industry investment. We saw that with the stimulus in 09 and 2010 that Obama passed and our response to that uh, great recession. And I think that did help jumpstart battery price decreases, solar and wind price decreases. But something you just said is something I hadn't really thought about before, which is on the charging side, we kind of take it as a given that, for example, super fast charging, it just is expensive to put in these super fast charging stations. I'm talking about 350 kilowatt chargers that, you know, within 10 minutes, you could get, you know, 150 miles of range, uh, which is close to gas station charging times. But, you know, to think that, well, maybe these you know, these uh, high powered charging stations don't need to cost 80 grand. Maybe we can bring the cost down to 10 grand 
you know, similar as we saw the battery price decreases. I haven't studied that market as much, but it is pretty exciting to think about on that side of things. I, I think it's an almost a certainty. And, and Shell has just announced that it's going to start doing electric vehicle charging in gas stations. And, you know, that that conceivably is a game changer. And they're going to be looking to bring the price down for sure. Mm-hmm. There are different technologies that are already working their way to market around charging. So th- this is a, a huge set of incentives. I'm a, a methane obsessive, so I'm particularly interested in, in a very big amount of funding to start dealing with the problem of orphan wells. And will you just explain why methane is, is important? Methane is the second biggest greenhouse gas after CO2. It's natural gas. It, it's emitted from oil and gas operations. It's emitted from agriculture, particularly from livestock. It's emitted from coal operations and from waste. And it it has a much higher greenhouse gas potential. In other words, it increases warming much at a much greater rate, like 80 times over the 20 years more than CO2. And it lasts in the atmosphere a lot shorter time. So if we get rid of it now, it'll actually be out of the atmosphere in a a period of years. That means that the opportunity to reduce methane emissions has a real benefit for the environment and, and to deal with climate change in a way that CO2 actually takes longer to get out of the environment. It's a product. So if you capture it, instead of emitting it, you can use it. One of the sources, unfortunately, of methane are what are called orphan wells, which are oil wells that have been abandoned, that nobody takes responsibility for. And there are thousands and thousands of them. There's thousands in California and there's thousands more in the rest of the country. The infrastructure bill actually provides a significant chunk of money to get some of that containment of those wells started. It's an important piece and it's something that, you know, we really uh, need to do. And California is looking to, to do more of that. So this will jumpstart California's efforts for sure. What about on the renewable energy side? There was a provision in there around transmission investments, and that seems to be a limiting factor for deployment of renewables around the country, that there aren't transmission lines to some of these prime renewable energy zones, whether it's solar or wind. And I've, I've read and heard people like our faculty director, Dan Farber, talk about some of the provisions that, you know, one of the holdups to transmission development is local opposition and the patchwork of laws governing the permitting of these installations, plus they're expensive to build, and that there is some effort to streamline that. But just curious what you make of those provisions. FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, has authority uh, to a certain extent over how electricity travels across grids. But there was a, a court case that limited that authority. The infrastructure bill actually changes that provision and gives FERC back authority that it thought it had. Because and they have authority over natural gas pipelines. They, right? have, they do, and, 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 but there's some limitations on the electricity side that are not on the gas side. And, well, there used to be. Now, uh, at least some of that is taken away because states historically, like California, have a very significant authority over their own grids. And that's created some issues around regional grids. But now that FERC has some additional authority, it doesn't necessarily need to use it. It just needs to get states to work more cooperatively within regions. 
California has already been doing some work. They have some market agreements with their neighbors when they have excess supply, and that has been working pretty well, but it can be expanded quite a bit. And, and a lot of the grid doesn't interact well with the rest of the grid. It's also aging infrastructure, and as you noted, it's really hard to, to rebuild. There's all kinds of issues around where you locate it, how you do it, how much it costs. And so the hope is that there are new dollars for the, some of that work and there's new authority to give FERC some authority to, to get states to work more cooperatively. We'll, we'll see. It's always a tricky issue, but I think it's a big step forward. And there's some money too, right? There is some money, absolutely. So can I ask you about the potential dark side of this infrastructure yeah. bill, which is highway infrastructure. And a lot of the transportation investments, you know, this is sold as roads and bridges. A lot of that means potentially encouraging more single occupant vehicle, higher vehicle miles traveled overall, which really undermines our climate goals, even as vehicles are turning towards you know, zero emission technologies. And uh, this bill, the way it's structured, it gives a lot of flexibility to states to spend the money the way they want to. Right now we have, from a climate perspective, a favorable US Department of Transportation that I think will make sure that a lot of the dollars that go out and the new grant programs will be more for climate-friendly infrastructure. But of course, that you know that may not be the case in the next administration. And right now we know a lot of states are pretty uh, biased towards highway infrastructure. So are you worried that this bill is gonna make things worse from a sort of overall vehicle miles traveled standpoint? California has the slogan of fix it first, which uh, I, I think is the idea of that is that we have a lot of infrastructure. We have a lot of roads and a lot of them are in trouble. They, they need to be resurfaced. Bridges need to be fixed, et cetera, et cetera. And so at least in California, there's a very high likelihood that the vast majority of those funds will be used to fix and upgrade existing structures and not for new highways. Californians drive 300 billion vehicle miles a year. It's an enormous number. And your point is very well taken that the more we build roads and, and access, the more miles we drive and the more climate implications that has, not just from a fuel standpoint, but also from how we use land and other things related to impacts on climate. So yes, there there is uh, some level of concern that you know this creates a, a new highway boom, but I think that in most jurisdictions the public really wants the existing roads and structures to be fixed. And I think you know, for example. In the city of Berkeley, where I try to ride my bike and run into potholes at a very high rate, I think there's a very significant interest among the public in having the roads fixed and not a huge contemplation of building more roads. But what, how it, how it uh, comes across in other parts of the country, I know less about, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. What about on the climate resilience, climate adaptation side? Anything stands out to you? As, uh, yeah, the, the, it's really one of the great portions of the bill, a recognition of some things that we need to do. We know climate change is here. You mentioned Louisiana and the hurricanes and some of the issues that they face. In California, a lot of it's around forest fires. There's money to think how we use forest lands in a different way and to, to try to deal with that. There's money dealing with flood control, very important, obviously. There's some specific provisions about heat 
impacts. We, for, we shouldn't forget that climate change is often about heat. There are provisions to try to deal with the, the uh, heat island impact in cities. So there's money for cool pavements, for trees. There's money for interesting innovations like clean energy on old mine sites, really thinking about using existing land in different ways. It's a new day in a way to really start thinking about resilience in a broad spectrum. I'm very hopeful that this money will start to get communities to think differently about how they deal with climate. And another provision that I uh, forgot to mention earlier was around the electric vehicle battery supply chain. Yeah. There's some provisions in there to boost up more of a domestic supply, which is controversial. And when, every time I talk about electric vehicles, I always get questions around, well, aren't the batteries bad for the environment? What about the mining impacts? And, yeah. and there's a lot of truth to that. But a lot of that is because the mining is happening abroad where it's not as regulated as it would be in the United States. And so I think if we can get our processes right here, all things being equal, it's better to have it happen domestically. There's national security reasons for that and local economic development opportunities to help rebuild some of our hollowed out rural communities to get them feeling invested in the electric vehicle transition. So I think those those provisions could be impactful, but you know, I think from an environmentalist perspective, everyone gets a little nervous when you talk about mining, even though it's something that's unavoidable. and. Uh, and necessary to this transition. Yeah, I would add to that that <clears throat> batteries are heavy. You don't want to ship them. <laughs> you don't want to be shipping batteries from China. That's going to generate a heck of a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. You want to have local uh, production if you possibly can. Um, it, it, yes, the, there are impacts of everything that we do. And so we have to be serious about evaluating those impacts, about reducing them. Potentially, from what I've read, the area in the Salton Sea could be a huge source of lithium, but it's also a very sensitive environmental area, and so those need to be balanced. This is not a new issue for any of us in the environmental world. We have to be sensitive to it, but I don't think, given where we are with climate change, that we can simply say we're not going to do it because we need to be sensitive about those impacts. We just need to figure out how to do them in an intelligent way and move forward. And we have to do it quickly because climate change has not given us a lot of lead time. Mm-hmm. So other provisions in the bill that we haven't mentioned that you think are worth highlighting? What are the bite size? You're the messaging guru now for the Democratic <laughs> Party. <laughs> well, I, I think there's some interesting things worth mentioning. There's a provision for carbon capture, which is something that because we're trying to get to what's called carbon neutrality, meaning that we're not emitting additional carbon into the atmosphere, we can't do that solely by reducing emissions. We can't get to zero emissions. One of the key strategies is around carbon capture and carbon sequestration. There's growing effort around technology to actually capture carbon CO2 directly from the atmosphere. And there's money in, in this bill to, to do some research and development, which I think is quite appropriate. There's also some money for promoting clean hydrogen. We haven't talked about that. It's another way to go about electric vehicles is another way to go about power plants. Just like we talked about with lithium and batteries, there are issues with how you generate hydrogen. It can take quite a lot of energy. It also can be from sources that are themselves emitters of, of carbon. It's another area, though, that has a lot of potential and we need to, to look at very carefully. 
There's provisions on building efficiency, which is something that in California we haven't done as well as we have hoped to this point. We have about 14 million existing buildings. Many of them are houses, but they need retrofitting. We need to rethink how that we're uh, promoting retrofitting. So that's a place where money from the federal government in this bill will, will be helpful. I think a lot of it is about jump-starting the private sector, making initial investments, getting things moving, getting things to have a cost curve that starts to reduce. And then I think you'll see more and more investment and you'll get to a tipping point and we'll forget that it was ever an issue. How soon do you think we're going to start seeing the effects of the spending in this bill? That's a really good question because one of the great challenges in government programs is always getting money out the door. And, you know, people are frustrated when, when the money doesn't come out the door. On the other hand, if the government spends money in a way that is a failure or is corrupt or is distorted, then you'll never hear the end of it. And so it has to be a trade-off here of doing it well, doing it carefully, but doing it at least a chunk of the money with some alacrity. And so we'll see, my expectation is that some agencies of the federal government will be good at it, some agencies will be less good at it, and some agencies may be quite bad at it. And so I think it'll be a mixed bag. I suspect that some of the funds out of the Department of Transportation and Department of Energy they're pretty good at, at getting some big dollars out the door, and I suspect that will continue. Also, some of the money is going to revamp or add additional resources to existing programs, so they already have a process, but where they have to start exactly. new programs, you know, do new rulemaking, that's going to take a while for sure. And then, of course, they might run into the buzz of local and state government policies and permitting and on and on, so are some question marks. All, all of those things are major issues. It's going to take a concerted effort to get dollars to people. A lot of it's going out to states and, you know, some of it in the form of blocks with guidelines. And so a, a fair amount of this is going to be on states to get the money out the door from the federal government. And hopefully there are processes in place to do that. I know California, you've identified a lot of the issues around permitting, around environmental review, et cetera. But going back to your point about batteries and other things, if you don't do a, a, a smart environmental review, you can create all kinds of new problems. Mm -hmm. And there'll be, you know, there'll be community issues as well. Some communities will really want these dollars. Some of them won't want them. Some of them will be good at getting the dollars. Some of them won't. And so we have to really think seriously about the issues of equity. I know that that's part of this infrastructure package. We didn't even talk about broadband and water, which also have implications for climate, but are, are pretty significant chunks of, of the bill as well that have a lot of implications for communities. Yeah. Anything else that you want to comment on about the bill? I don't think I know anything else about the bill. <laughs> there, a, a, couple, a, a couple of things that are, that are missing because everybody always you know, wants to bash it. Um, it, it would have been nice to see some coal and gas phase out provisions. We may see that and build back better the next potential large bill. They took out a lot of the provisions around workforce development. And, and that's, you know, I, I think that's unfortunate. There'll be 
other opportunities to fill some of that in. But, you know, I do want to end up where I started, which is, you know, I, I hope people come to appreciate just how impressive and expansive and beneficial this bill is and the actions that will come from it. All right. Well, you heard it here, hopefully not first, yeah. but you definitely heard it here in terms of the provisions that can impact people's daily lives and also really address the uh, the climate crisis that we face across the country. So thank you, Ken Alex, for joining us on Climate Break to give us the rundown and we'll see if this other social policy bill passes and then we'll be able to uh, have another episode talking about that federal bill. Look forward to it. Thanks, Ethan. To learn more about the infrastructure bill, please go to climatebreak.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ethan Elkind, and this was Climate Break.